Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's national parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 18.2. In this episode, I speak with park ranger Cassie Anderson from Mere Woods National Monument. We talk about the history and creation of Mere Woods, all about the coastal redwoods, the tallest living things on earth, and tips for visitors. We also want to hear about your adventures. Do you have a story to tell about your family's experience at a national park? A favorite recommendation to share or how this podcast helped enrich your trip? Email us at hello at everybody'snps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybody'snps.com. Before I get to today's topic, I want to take a moment to talk about listener support. If you are already a patron of the podcast, thank you so much and feel free to skip ahead one minute to today's conversation. If you are not yet a patron and you want to hear my thoughts on this topic, here they are. This podcast is a labor of love. We were looking for a podcast that would help us in planning our family trips to national parks. We could not find one, and so we decided to create the podcast we were looking for. I ask you this question, has this podcast brought you value? If so, would you consider becoming a patron by offering financial support? Patreon is a platform that allows for recurring monthly support for as low as a dollar per month. You may find a link on our website, everybody'snationalparks.com to support the show. Thank you to all of our patrons. Now let's get to the conversation. I'm here with Cassie Anderson. She is Supervisory Park Ranger at Muir Woods National Monument in the Bay Area, just outside of San Francisco in California. Hi, Cassie. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Danielle. Great to be here. So, Cassie, First, can you give yourself just a little bit of an introduction? Tell us how long you've been at the park and what you do at the park. So I'm kind of new to Muir Woods National Monument. I've been here seven months, um, but I'm not new to the park service. I worked at three parks before this, and then I actually volunteered for the park service as a kid. That's how I got into this career path in the first place. So at Muir Woods, I'm the supervisory park ranger in interpretation. So that means that I manage our interpretive park rangers here at Muir Woods, and I serve as a site supervisor. So um, sometimes I get to do fun things like take walks in the woods, give ranger chats, swear in children as junior rangers. Uh, But most of my job is behind the scenes. Um, I do a lot of unglamorous work working on hiring staff, budgeting, supervising with the team here. Um, I'm involved in project management, and I also am really passionate about teaching and coaching interpretation to other interpretive rangers or volunteers. And then I also get to work on national strategy for the Park Service in how we are supporting our workforce across the agency. So you will occasionally see me out with the public, but most of my job is actually behind the scenes in the office. Wow, that's a lot of work, and I was happy to get to see you out and about when we were there. Absolutely. I'm so glad that I happened to catch you and your daughters for their junior ranger ceremony. (laughs) Yeah, that was so great. You talked about 
training and training others. And so we'll just mention that you have two park rangers sitting with you listening in on this conversation and they may participate as well. I do. Yeah. We're using this as a shadowing opportunity for us all to learn about doing interviews and especially for the podcast format. So thanks for giving us this chance, Danielle. Great. I'm always happy to. And before we jump in, I have to ask, uh, what kind of volunteering did you do as a kid? Because both of my kids, as I'm sure you could imagine from meeting them and seeing them, they both want yeah. to be park rangers when they grow up. And they are well on their way. Um, <laughs> I started volunteering as a nine-year-old at Fort Vancouver National Historic Site. That's the national park site that's in my hometown of Vancouver, Washington. And I started volunteering there because I loved history and I had the chance to dress up like it was the 1840s and then do living history with the public. So that's when you wear um, a historic costume and you do some kind of demonstration like gardening or music or embroidery. Um, and then as I got older, hatchet throwing, black powder, cannons, <laughs> um, and you're bringing history to life for the people visiting the park. So I did that for about a decade uh, before being hired for the National Park Service and joining the team as staff. Wow, that's so cool. Unfortunately, we don't live very close to any national parks. So um, my daughter will have to find some other volunteer opportunities. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I hope she can find something. I'm sure she will. Yeah, and we'll, of course, keep visiting the parks and uh, doing junior ranger programs. So let's start with an overview of the park. How big is Muir Woods? What does it consist of? And how did it come to be? Muir Woods is 550 acres of old growth coast redwood forest. It has six miles of trails, but those six miles of trails connect to over 200 miles of trails in the surrounding state park, surrounding um, national park and uh, county water district lands. So your woods itself is kind of small, but it's nestled within this much larger green belt on this part of Marin County. At the start of your woods, there's the visitor center and the bookstore. Just past that, there's the cafe and the gift shop. And then once you're in the forest and on the trails, there are um, no more buildings and fewer signs of people. Part of the experience of Muir Woods is feeling like you're in a primeval forest, that you're really in a place where time takes a different pace. Yeah, we felt that when we were there, in parts of it, it can get very crowded, but in other areas, you feel alone and you're just with these huge, immense trees. I have a couple of follow-up questions. What is the name of the state park? And there, you said two different areas. There's a state park. That is connected. And then there's a national, is it a national forest? The state park that's around Muir Woods is called Mount Tamalpais State Park. And then the other lands that are managed by the National Park Service include Muir Beach and Stinson Beach. Further north of us is Point Reyes National Seashore, a different national park site. And then there are also lands in this watershed managed by the Marin County Water District. And when you say old growth forest, to me, that means, you know, it's the, it's the first trees. It's not secondary trees. But what is the definition? What constitutes an old growth forest? There are a couple of different definitions, but what they have in common is that old growth forests typically have trees that are over about 200 or 250 years old. So they need to be older than that. In this part of the world, that means that 
those trees um, survived much of the 19th century and early 20th century logging. So that's pretty important because it means that an old growth forest still has trees that are at all different stages of life. So Muir Woods has tiny baby redwood sprouts at the very start of their life. A lot of the trees in Muir Woods are between five and 700 years old. So for a redwood that can easily be 2,000 years old, and, and it's common that they can also be 2,500 years old, being five to 800 years old is still kind of early in its life. And Muir Woods does have trees that uh, could be older than that. And we also have trees that are at the end of their life. We have nurse logs that are lying down on the forest floor and starting to give an, a new cycle of life to the rest of the forest. So an old growth forest generally has not been logged. It's a couple hundred years old. It has trees at all different stages of life. Are there other old growth forests or old growth coastal redwood forest or is Muir Woods the only one? There are 1.6 million acres of coast redwood trees in the whole world right now. Of that, only 7% is old growth coast redwood. And then speaking more locally on Mount Tamalpais, so Muir Woods is in a canyon and that, that canyon or valley is part of this larger mountain, Mount Tamalpais. Of Mount Tamalpais and its watershed, um, only 11% of the redwoods here are old growth and the vast majority of those are in Muir Woods. Let's talk about the coastal redwoods. That's why this park was designated and protected. What makes the coastal redwoods special? Coast redwoods are special for a lot of reasons. They're tall, they're old, they're fascinating, and they're awesome. (laughs) Coast redwoods are the tallest living thing on the planet. The tallest coast redwoods that we know of are about 380 feet tall. Now, those don't live in mere woods, but they grow further north Um, in Northern California, where the trees get more rain and can reach more maximum heights. Now, because most coast redwood trees have been logged, remember we only have a a small percentage of old growth coast redwoods left, there could have been coast redwood trees even taller than that 380 foot mark. We're just not sure. So of what's left in the world, they can get that tall. The ones in Muir Woods are between 200 to 258 feet. So these trees make us feel small. When a lot of people walk through the trails of Muir Woods, they are looking up and they're gazing at the trees. It's hard to see the tops of the trees. And it's a really neat perspective to be at the bottom of something that is so big and so old. Redwoods also live a really long time. They're not the oldest tree in the world, but it's still pretty impressive. Redwoods can be uh, 2,000 years old easily um, and up to 2,500 years old as well. In addition to that, redwoods have a lot of cool adaptations that help them thrive and live so long. And a big one is that they make tannic acid in their wood and their bark. So tannic acid or tannins, tannins are the same thing that is in coffee, tea, dark chocolate, red wine. So just like the tannic acid that makes those foods taste bitter to humans, the tannic acid in redwood wood and bark makes the tree taste kind of bitter to most bugs. So that means that not very many insects like to eat redwood wood. The trees are kind of bug proof. The tannic acid also means that fungus doesn't grow on the trees. So the trees are also kind of rot resistant. In addition to that, redwoods have really thick bark. Their bark can be up to 12 inches thick. As a tree species, they're pretty low in resin. Resin's really flammable. So a tree low in resin doesn't burn as well. 
Now, redwoods do still burn. They are wood, but of different kinds of wood and of trees, they are fairly fire resistant. So they're kind of bug resistant, rot resistant, and fire resistant. They're the tallest things in the world, and they can live thousands of years. So they're a pretty spectacular tree. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And so what are their biggest threats? The biggest things that are threatening redwood trees right now are humans. Um, It's both logging and climate change. So by now, the old growth coast redwood trees that are left are almost all in protected lands and parks. So that is fantastic. However, park boundaries do not protect the trees and the other species inside from the effects of climate change. So some of the effects of climate change that we're seeing directly in Muir Woods is that climate change may be reducing the amount of fog coming in off the Pacific Ocean. The fog is really important for redwood trees. It's why redwood trees live on the coast. Every day, a redwood tree needs as much water as would fill a five-person jacuzzi. So a tree can soak up some of that water from its roots. It can get some from the rain in the winter. But in California's dry summers, coast redwood trees depend on that ocean fog coming in and bringing moisture through the air. So as the climate changes, what we're starting to see is a reduction in the the amount of hours per day that there's fog here. So that could mean that our trees get thirsty. We're not sure how they'll fare in the years to come. The other effect of climate change that we're seeing in the forest is that as oceans absorb excess carbon, the oceans are going through ocean acidification. The makeup of the ocean is changing and it's it's harder for the creatures that live there to survive. For us, that directly affects the coho salmon and the steelhead trout that spend part of their life in the ocean and then come back up the Redwood Creek right in the middle of the park to spawn. One of the things that we really hope to share when people come to Muir Woods um, is that we really want people to have a connection to nature here. Redwood forests are pretty emotional. They're spectacular, they're stunning, they're ancient, and it can be a really moving experience to come to a place like this. So as people from all over the world come to Muir Woods and to other redwood forests, we hope that their visits here help spark stewardship um, and help them take actions to um, mitigate climate change in their daily lives. Yeah, that is uh, that is definitely a big hope. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Where do we find them? Are they up all along the coast? And how far up do they go? Historically, coast redwoods did grow along the entire northern California coast. Nowadays, um, because most of the range has been logged, there are pockets left. And these pockets extend from the Oregon-California border down south of San Francisco to about the Big Sur area. And the coast redwood range is really on the coast. It's on this side of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And again, that's because of the amount of fog coming in off the ocean is what gets this species through the dry summers. And the tallest tree that you talked about, the tree that's 385 feet, where is that found? Yeah, the tallest redwood trees are much further north in California, often in Humboldt County or the counties surrounding that. Is that part of the national park system or a California state park system? Both. So another wonderful place to see old growth redwood trees is redwood national and state parks. So that's a pretty unique combination where the National Park Service as well as California state parks are working together to manage park lands. Great. 
So I'm wondering, you know, you said that the tallest tree is 385 feet, but in Mere Woods, they're in the 200, 280 feet. How tall is that? Is there something, for example, the Statue of Liberty or something to relate it to, to get a sense of the size of how tall these trees are? Yeah, it is really tall. Well, the Statue of Liberty would not be able to reach the top of a redwood tree. (laughs) The tallest redwood trees at about 380 feet, that's as tall as a 38-story skyscraper. You know, we've established that these trees are very special and need to be protected. And they're such interesting trees. What you talked about with the tannins, that really resonated with my kids, especially when we were there, and how strong these trees are. And and resilient and and can survive and protect themselves. It is so interesting. And hopefully we can stop uh, humans from destroying them. But there were some humans early on in, uh, in the park's history that wanted to protect these trees. Can you give a little bit overview of how the park came about? Before this was even a park, the first people of this land, the Coast Miwok people, did protect the redwood trees. So for the vast majority of the the redwoods here, um, I mean, it's only recently we're calling it Muir Woods. So for the vast majority of these trees' lifetimes and the trees that came before them, they were in wonderful stewardship hands of the Coast Miwok people. Coast Miwok people lived not necessarily inside Muir Woods, but on the surrounding areas a little bit lower on this mountain, Mount Tamalpais. But regimes of Mexican, Spanish, and American colonization forced indigenous people out of their homelands all over California and beyond, including here. So that means that the stewards of Muir Woods changed, and Muir Woods changed hands through quite a few different people throughout the 1800s and into the 1900s. And um, at each of these intersections, Muir Woods was kind of saved just in the nick of time. There were um, many times where Muir Woods could have been cut down, and thank goodness it wasn't. One of these was during the California Gold Rush of 1849. When gold was discovered in California, people flocked here from all over the world, and there was a huge demand for lumber. Many redwood forests were cut during that time. Muir Woods was spared because it's nestled down in this canyon and it's hard to get to. So it wasn't worth it compared to other more easily accessible lumber. So Muir Woods survived that. But logging continued throughout the late 1800s. And by the turn of the century, eyes were on Muir Woods again as a stand of old growth redwood to cut down. When logging was imminent, again, at the turn of the century, Elizabeth Thatcher Kent and her husband, William Kent, had the money and the desire to buy Muir Woods to save it from being logged. And that's what they did. They did that in 1905, and it was just in the nick of time because the next year, San Francisco suffered a huge earthquake and fire. Eighty percent of San Francisco burned to the ground in the fire that resulted from the 1906 earthquake. So eyes were on any standing tree to log and rebuild. Muir Woods was not logged at that time because the Kents had just bought it the year before and um, they didn't want it logged. They saw value in these trees. They saw value in the tree standing as an old growth redwood forest. But the next year, in 1907, a local water company filed suit to acquire the heart of the woods for a dam and a reservoir and to log the trees. They were saying that they could legally force this sale because they were providing a public service. It was an eminent domain claim. 
So um, up against this, the Kents did the only thing they could to save Muir Woods, which was to give it away. So they gave it to the federal government. The Kents donated the land of Muir Woods to the federal government. President uh, Teddy Roosevelt was president at the time, and Teddy Roosevelt used a new law, the 1906 Antiquities Act, to sign Muir Woods into uh, protection as a national monument. Now, this was before the National Park Service existed, but there were still national parks and national monuments being established. Once Teddy Roosevelt signed Muir Woods as a national monument. It was off limits from any kind of eminent domain claim, and the, the water company could not go through with that suit to dam it and log it. It's named Muir Woods because William Kent looked up to John Muir. John Muir was very influential in saving other lands and uh, huge in the environmental movement. Um, and he came to Muir Woods a few times. He was very touched that it was named Muir Woods, but he was not pivotal in saving this part of forest. It's just named in honor of him. And then it was Muir Woods National Monument, kind of as a standalone uh, park up until 1972 when Golden Gate National Recreation Area was established. And then Muir Woods is sort of nested in under the, the larger National Park Service sites here. Wow, that is really an incredible story to hear. And for visitors and even myself now, we heard an even more brief version of this story when we were there. But hearing all that, wow, we really have to appreciate what we have. It's just incredible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at so many turns, this forest was really close to being cut down. Um, so I'd like to share that history with visitors because I think it helps us show even more gratitude toward being here. That it's wonderful that people from all over the world can come and enjoy this park with their families or by themselves or with their friends and have an experience in nature here. And it's even more special because at so many turns, we were really close to not even having this old growth forest yeah. anymore at all. That's amazing. So that actually ties really well into the efforts we learned about when we were there and we talked about offline that you guys there at the park have made a lot of... Uh, improvements and changes to protect the trees because they are fragile with the boardwalks and, and some other things. And I know the root systems were very fragile. Do you want to talk a little bit about those efforts you've done in the park for the visitor experience and to protect the trees? Like you said, redwood roots are shallow. Though redwoods can be 380 feet tall, their roots go down 10 to 13 feet how such a tall tree stays stable with such shallow roots is actually because the roots can go out about 100 feet. So underneath the ground, redwood roots are interlacing with each other, not only to physically stabilize each other and hold each other up, but then the roots also connect and the trees can uh, share glucose, the, the sugary food, the main, a main tree food. They can share that between their roots. Our joke is that this is called the wood wide web, how they're all connected under our feet and sharing messages and glucose and keeping each other up. Um, and because their roots are so shallow, the park does have boardwalks um, over a lot of the many parts of the forest because we have about a million people who visit per year. So that's roughly two million feet. <laughs> And the impact of 2 million feet walking on the soft forest soil would um, eventually compact the soil and could hurt the roots. So to fix that, we have people walking on a slightly elevated boardwalk through large parts of the forest. That also means that the path 
that takes visitors through the groves of the oldest, tallest trees in the park is wheelchair and stroller accessible. Oh, that's great to know. People are there to see the coastal redwoods, but there's a whole ecosystem there. So what makes up the ecosystem and what else should people be looking for? Yes, thank you for asking that. We give the Coast Redwoods a lot of attention, but thank you for asking about some of the other plants and animals that are here that are also wonderful. So in the forest, there are also Douglas fir trees, pan oak trees, California bay laurel trees. I actually really love the bay laurel trees. They need a lot of sunlight, and so in a forest like a redwood forest that is so shady because the redwoods are tall and they're they're blocking out most of the sun for the plants underneath them, in a forest like this, bay laurel trees curve and twist their branches to reach any available patch of sunlight. So as you're walking through Muir Woods, you're walking past big, reddish-brown, straight trunks of redwood trees, and then among them are these smaller, slender, curving, arching, dancing, mossy trunks and branches of the bay laurel trees. And the bay laurels have green leaves, mostly, and then as their leaves fall off, they kind of, uh, they turn yellow. So the, the forest floor and the paths can be dotted with these bright yellow leaves that smell amazing. For anyone visiting your woods, please pick up a yellow bay laurel leaf and let the oil from that leaf fill your nose. It smells kind of citrusy, kind of minty. Some people even say it's, it feels a little bit like breathing in menthol, like it's clearing their sinuses. Did you have a chance to smell that with your family when you were here? We did. Yes. I think we we held a leaf and and sniffed it for most of our walk. It smelled so good. I think Nelson, the volunteer who gave the tree talk the day we were there, showed us the leaf and it smelled really good. Are there animals to look out for when you're there? Yeah. Animals of Muir Woods include deer, gray foxes, bobcats, and coho salmon, steelhead trout, and a fun one, banana slugs. Banana slugs love redwood forests. They eat everything in the redwood forest except redwood trees. And we think that this is a pretty cool relationship because the redwood trees grow up to give the banana slugs the moist, shady environment that they need to survive. So banana slugs will eat everything else in the forest, but they will not eat redwoods. Like they won't eat even new sprouting redwoods. That's the tree that grows up to give them their home. Got it. I don't remember seeing any um, particular bugs or animals while we were there. I'm sure we saw crows and, and some birds, but nothing nothing stands out in my in my memory. But the water coming through and I was wondering, I was looking since we were there in spring about a spring spawning run. I think you mentioned that earlier. So when would be a time to see that? If you want to see coho salmon when they're spawning, December, January, and February are good times to come. So here, a little bit more toward the winter months um, that the spawning happens. Um, The steelhead trout spawn just a little bit later than the coho. So when we see the salmon start running, it's the coho starting, and then toward the end of the run, it's the steelhead trout. They spawn in the winter. That's also the time that the creek is the highest from the amount of rain coming into the creek. So that would make their journey upstream easier. We have deep enough water for them to actually make it upstream to where they're going to lay their eggs. We used to live in Washington, D.C., and so we would go to Rock Creek Park to to see the spawning run. And uh, we were actually there this spring. We just happened to be there while it was happening, and it was pretty cool. 
So, oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was actually really amazing. We got lucky. We saw a park ranger down there, actually. And um, he said that we got it at the best moment in time at, that he hadn't seen it this good. There were just fish everywhere, just jumping up. You didn't have to even look very hard because there were just so many. So we really lucked out. I had never seen it like that. That's fantastic. It was very cool. Let's get into tips for visiting. Is there a best time to visit or, you know, it's pretty temperate climate. So any time of year would be great. And, you know, tips for visitors. How can they make the most out of their visit and what should they expect? Well, I think it's always a wonderful time to come to Muir Woods, but I am a biased audience. <laughs> um, but yes, like you said, uh, the mild climate means that, yeah, this is a great year-round destination. There are different things to see in nature at different times of the year. In the winter, that's when the salmon are spawning. The spring brings wildflowers and uh, baby animals like fawns. Um, the summer brings really good weather and less of a chance of rain. The fall brings ladybug clusters. So there really is a lot happening whatever time of year you come. Um, and as for choosing a date to come, Muir Woods is open from 8 a.m. to sunset. Coming at the start of the day or at the end of the day generally has less people, but coming in the middle of the day means that there are more ranger programs. So depending on what you might be interested in, you might pick a various, you know, one time of day versus another. And the great news is that starting in 2018, Muirwood started a parking and bus reservation system. So we used to have a challenge of this park kind of getting loved to death where we had thousands and thousands of people visiting Muirwoods in one day. Remember, Muirwoods is small. It's 550 acres. It's six miles of trails. So days where six or 7,000 people come to Muirwoods made the woods feel like it was really crowded. And it wasn't very pleasant for visitors because it felt like you're in a crowd of people. It was kind of a dangerous and inconvenient parking situation because there weren't there wasn't space for that many people's cars. So starting in 2018, we started a reservation system for uh, people to reserve their parking for their car before they come or reserve a ticket on the Muirwood shuttle if they're coming here by bus. And this has been awesome because it means that with that reservation, you get to the park and then within minutes, you are from the bus or from your car in the forest. No more circling for parking, no more waiting in a long line. Um, the time from arrival to forest is minutes, and that's what we're going for. It also means that once you are in the woods, you have a little more space in nature. You have a little more room since the amount of people coming here hasn't really gone down, but it has evened out. So, for example, instead of 7,000 people coming on a Saturday and 3,000 coming on a Wednesday, we're going to even those both out to an average. So each, you know, each day people can have an experience in nature. And so just to reiterate, you can't just show up. You can't just drive in and pay to park. You have to have a reservation that you've made in advance, whether it's via the shuttle or to be able to park your car. Yes, exactly. You must have a reservation in advance before you come if you're parking a car here or you're taking the bus here. And those are the main ways that people come to Muir Woods. You make those reservations on the website gomirwoods.com. It's $8 per car to park here and it's $3 per person to take the bus. And I did see quite a few bikers biking that very, very steep hill. So can a biker just show up? 
Yeah, a biker can just show up. They do not need a reservation. There is a bike rack at the start of the park at the visitor center while they will need to lock their bike. Um, bikes are not allowed inside of Muir Woods, not even for a cyclist to walk their bike along with them. So the bikes do need to be locked up outside. We do have bike locks at the visitor center if someone forgets. And you're right, cyclists do come here. It's a pretty intrepid ride, um, considering that the, the mountain road to get here is steep and winding with no bike lane and no shoulder. But uh, serious cyclists do arrive by bike. Mm-hmm. And can people jog, run, bring dogs on the trails? Jogging or running on the trails is fine. Generally, if we see trail runners a little bit earlier in the day when the trails are less crowded, or they'll use some of the other 200 miles of trails that are in this whole um, green belt of public lands in this part of Marin County. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are tons of trail running and jogging options that is okay in your woods, though runners may choose a less populated trail nearby because there are so many to choose from. Dogs are not allowed in Muir Woods. The only animals that are permitted to go into the woods are service animals. What about recommended hikes? It looked to me like there was one main trail and there were, I believe, three or four bridges. So you could make, you know, do the longest or shorten it up. And then, of course, you could make a longer hike by going into the extended area that goes into the surrounding public lands. The main trail through the park is a two-mile loop, so it starts and ends at the visitor center, and it takes visitors through the groves of the oldest, tallest trees in Muir Woods. It also has some neat opportunities along the way where there are trees. There's one in Bohemian Grove, and there's one in Cathedral Grove. Cathedral Grove is the park's quiet zone where we ask that people whisper or don't talk at all so that we can really only hear the sounds of the forest. But in Cathedral Grove and in Bohemian Grove um, are trees that you can step into, take a picture inside. So there are opportunities for that on this main trail. And there are four bridges that cross Redwood Creek. They're labeled bridge one, two, three, and four. (laughs) Um, And so using these bridges, visitors can make a small loop, a medium loop, or a larger loop, depending on their time or the distance that they'd like to go in the forest. Besides the main trail, there are more miles of trails in Muir Woods, and those trails directly connect to even more trails in the surrounding state park land. So if someone is visiting Muir Woods and they're looking for something more than the park's main two-mile loop trail, I recommend the Canopy View Trail. This trail starts about five minutes into the forest and has about 300 feet elevation gain. And you can do a loop on the Canopy View Trail and then um, the Lost Trail and then the Fern Creek Trail returning back to the park's main trail. Something that I think is really cool about this loop is by going up a couple hundred feet in elevation, you start to look sideways at the redwood trees. Because the main trail is it's right next to the creek. It's at the bottom of the canyon. It's also flat and accessible. So So you're always at the base of the redwood trees. By going up on the canopy view trail, you get to look sideways at the trees. So we went up, we went through um, the cathedral area, and then we crossed over bridge four, and then we went up. Oh, great. Yeah. So it sounds like you crossed over bridge four and returned on the hillside trail, which is another fantastic option to look sideways at the trees. The hillside trail is shorter than the canopy view loop. So for folks um, who don't have uh, very much additional time but would still like to look sideways at the trees, the hillside trail would be the place to go. 
I really enjoyed that. We all did. That was really great to be able to have that sense being at the base. And then, like you said, kind of being in the middle and looking at it across that, that was nice to get that view and get, you know, get to see a more of a glimpse of the sky and see how tall they were uh, from both uh, looking up and looking down. I like that yeah. perspective. Getting both perspectives was great. Yeah. It makes me feel like a forest creature. So do you have recommendations? I struggled with this. I don't know if you have photography expertise. Do you have, by chance, tips on how to take pictures of these trees since they are so tall? Yes, I do. Thanks for asking. My main photography tip for taking pictures of the trees is to respect the trees. It's important when we're taking pictures to stay on the trails uh, because the root system of the trees is so shallow and there are so many people enjoying and loving muirwoods every year. We need to stay on the trails to protect the plants of the forest understory and protect the shallow roots of these magnificent trees. There are trees. There's a tree in Bohemian Grove and in Cathedral Grove where you can go inside the tree and take a picture. So there's no need to step off a trail to go find one that's already on the trail ready and waiting for you. Um, another photography tip is if you are using a smartphone as a panorama feature, turn it sideways so your panorama goes top to bottom or bottom to top. This can let you get a long skinny picture with the whole tree looking up and then up to the tips of the other trees. That's what I did while I was there. <laughs> I did it work out for you? <laughs> pretty good. It, you know, the trees on the side end up being a little distorted, but it's still, they make for cool pictures. It was very, good. it was very overcast when we were there. So the lighting was a little challenging, but um, yeah, but it was still, it was still good and fun. And when people are there, what types of ranger programs can they uh, try to attend? We have a lot of ranger programs here. Every day we offer 15-minute tree talks. So this is like a 15-minute ranger chat um, that's inside the forest where rangers will talk a little bit about the history and science and nature and ecology of the forest. Some days we also offer one-hour walking tours of the forest. Um, that will be along the park's main trail, the accessible trail. And then we have wonderful volunteers at Muirwoods like Nelson, who you met, who offer special programs. Nelson offers a sunrise tour. So this is a reservation-only four-and-a-half-hour tour through the forest starting, depending on the time of year, at 5, 6, or 7 a.m. So it's a really special time to be in the forest where the light is just coming in. There's hardly anyone else on the trail. Sometimes more animals are out. Um, and Nelson gives a lot of information about the history of the forest during this really informative tour. Um, another volunteer on the, at the other end of the day sometimes leads a special program called Owl Wars, which is kind of an evening stroll and hike, more of a hike through the forest, um, hoping to hear owls in Muir Woods. So we have our daily programs of our ranger chats and on some days our one-hour tours, and then our volunteers really help us out by being able to offer some more extended programs and at some pretty neat times of the day. You can always check our website to see what dates these programs are if you're planning a trip. Okay, and so all these programs can be found on your website. Yeah, the special programs like the Sunrise Tours and the Owl Wars are on our website. The 15-minute ranger chats and the one-hour tours we offer often, and we make that schedule the night before. So when you arrive at Muirwoods, ask at the visitor center or check the board, and you'll see what times the chats are. Great. That's good to know. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time, Cassie, out of your very busy day and having this training opportunity for your colleagues as well. So we always end our talks with pretty much the same question. If you can share a special moment or a special experience you've had in the park where you think to yourself, wow, I'm really lucky to be here. This is a really special place. Do you have something that you can share with me? Yeah, I do. And it'll take a little bit of background for me to set it up. (laughs) The background story is that one of the things that I think is really amazing about Muir Woods and the National Park Service here is how much we are trying to save and protect the endangered coho salmon that spawn and depend on Redwood Creek. Redwood Creek is the creek that goes directly through Muir Woods, and then three miles from Muir Woods, it empties into the Pacific Ocean. So in recent years, coho numbers have been critically low. At its lowest, there was one year where there were only 11 coho salmon that came into Redwood Creek to spawn. When numbers got so low, the National Park Service decided to intervene. And the way they did the intervention was once coho salmon had laid their eggs and the new salmon had hatched in the creek in Muir Woods, then um, the National Park Service team and partners took some of those baby coho salmon out of the creek and took them to a hatchery just to raise them up to being adults. The point of this was to guarantee that enough of those babies would survive to adulthood. In a hatchery, you have almost 100% survival rate. That's much higher than the survival rate of a baby coho salmon in the wild. Once the hatchery raised coho salmon were ready to spawn, the team brought them back to this watershed and released them at a few different places, uh, kind of between Muir Woods and the beach three miles away. That's perfect because since these coho were born here, they have their homing desire to spawn exactly where they were born. They were born in this creek. They knew that. They're ready to spawn. They're released back in this creek, and they went to where they could spawn. So the National Park Service did this cycle for three years. The last hatchery raised coho release was in 2018. And something that I think is really special about this story is how people have rallied around the coho salmon. And it's pretty neat because people also have rallied rallied around saving the coast redwood trees. Women grassroots organizers at the turn of the century, like Elizabeth Thatcher Kent, who we talked about in the story of saving of Muir Woods, she and other women really rallied around saving coast redwoods and giant sequoias. And it's a lot of their grassroots activist organizing effort that saved these trees and set the political scene for why this could become a monument at all. And so it's really neat to see that kind of community enthusiasm and teamwork around coho salmon. Because when the National Park Service released these spawning salmon, school groups showed up, um, youth clubs showed up, community members showed up. There were so many people there excited to watch the spawning salmon get their, and their transfer. So it's a little bulky there. You've got a spawning salmon in a cooler on a wheeled cart and you're getting it out of a truck where they, you know, got this water tank and you're, you got to hustle and you got to get it into the creek because it's just in a cooler and you like have to move really fast um, to, you know, get it from, get into enough water quickly since the coolers can't hold very much water. Anyway, it's this, so it's kind of a spectacle and it's this fast process and we really have to get the salmon from A to B and we got to release them and it's now's the time and we got to go. 
so many people came to watch what was going on, to learn about it, to cheer for the salmon, to wish them well. And so it's really inspirational to see people rallying around around this issue. And it's also really great that salmon numbers are increasing. This last winter, 93 coho salmon spawned in the creek. And so far, we've counted 950 smolt, or baby coho. So we think from a population that at its lowest was 11, at least this year was 93, with 950 babies. So this looks like a positive success story that is happening and that we hope this trend continues. I think it's wonderful that this coho restoration can happen so close to a big urban area like San Francisco, where people can really participate in it and get involved in the conservation that's happening. That's a great story. Hopefully that has a domino effect that raises awareness on so many other issues and climate change affecting the trees and such. And people will bring their activism efforts that started at the turn of the century for these trees and continue on today to help and preserve these trees for future generations. Absolutely. That's the goal. Well, Cassie Anderson, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, We've learned so much and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much, Danielle. And thank you for all that you and your family do to connect people to their national parks. It is our pleasure. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybodysnps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybodysnationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybodysnationalparks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.